the best people to introduce the guests that we have today, I guess, would be the guests themselves. Um, and I think it would be better if we start with, or like we would like to start with Professor Hannon. Uh, and would you would you be able to tell us and our listeners who are you and why are you here today? And also briefly about how did you end up in Lafayette and what do you do here? Hi, yes, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and have this conversation with you all. Um, so my name is Professor Susan Hannon and I am an assistant professor in the psychology department. I am also one of PASA's um, faculty advisors. So I have been at Lafayette since 2017. Prior to working at Lafayette, I was predominantly in the clinical world. So I was living in California and I was working at a couple of veterans affairs hospitals in California, um, typically in some form of clinic that looked at post-traumatic stress disorder, veterans with PTSD, or veterans who um, had experienced military sexual trauma. Um, but it, it became pretty apparent to me during my postdoc that a full-time clinical position was just not a good fit for me. I already felt so burnt out um, and just very, very stressed that I decided to switch my career trajectory a bit and go into academia. I had taught before at a community college and I absolutely loved it. So um, I really wanted to focus more so on teaching and do and conduct research and do a little bit of clinical work on the side. So I applied for visiting assistant professor positions and was lucky enough to get uh, the position at Lafayette, which turned into a tenure track position last year. So this is my first year on the tenure track. Oh, congratulations. Um, and so you talked, like you said that you conduct research. Um, would you be able to elaborate more on that? What is the specific area of research that you're more focused in? Um, and we've heard like a little bird told us that it could be institutional betrayal. So is that, mm -hmm. is that accurate? <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. Yeah. So uh, I mean, broadly, my research is in the field of traumatic stress. I think ever since grad school, I've been really interested in why some individuals go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder after experiencing a traumatic event and why some people don't. Because the interesting thing is, um, unfortunately, many people will experience a traumatic event in their lifetime, but a very small percentage of those individuals will go on to develop psychopathology like post-traumatic stress disorder. So I've just always found that question really interesting. And so I've looked at um, risk and resiliency factors related to PTSD. And one of the risk factors that research has shown that can really exacerbate PTSD is this concept of institutional betrayal. Um, and I wanna throw out there that I did not coin the phrase institutional betrayal. Um, Jennifer, Dr. Jennifer Fried at the University of Oregon and her collaborators, her team, they are the folks um, that, that coined this phrase and really started um, this research program on institutional betrayal. Would it be helpful maybe to define institutional betrayal a little bit? Yes, okay, I'm seeing heads nodding. Yes, yeah. um, so the like official de definition of institutional betrayal is um, any kind of wrongdoing that's perpetrated by an institution upon individuals dependent on that institution. Uh, but we can break down that definition a little bit. So an institution can be lots of different things. It could be, I think, most obvious to us, a college campus. It could be uh, an organization within, a within an institution. So Greek life, for example. Um, it could be the military that is an institution, a church. Again, really any organization where the individual is perceived to have some kind of dependency on and, and reliance to. Institutional betrayal can occur after someone experiences some kind of wrongdoing, like a traumatic event, such as a campus sexual assault, and then they turn to either like the institution at large or people within that institution for help. 
And for one reason or another, they're left feeling betrayed or wronged by that institution. It's interesting. I was just reading the uh, Lafayette today. Um, it was out in the main office and there is, I think this is the updated edition. Yeah, Friday, April 23rd. I don't know if any of you have seen it yet, but there is an article um, that interviews PASA's founder. And the founder talks about her sexual assault experience when she was at Lafayette. And there is just a, a section in there that I think really highlights institutional betrayal where, where she experienced a sexual assault and then had the thought like, okay, this person is going to get kicked out. And I don't know if she was referring to being kicked out of Greek life or kicked out of Lafayette as a whole because the, the perpetrator was a member of Greek life. And when that didn't happen, she talked about just feeling like completely like, what? Like, this is just not almost like this. And I'm not quoting her now, but almost like this is not the world as I had known it. Um, and so there's a lot of research that shows that institutional betrayal can exacerbate or make worse symptoms of PTSD. And what's interesting is that folks who have experienced trauma with um, institutional betrayal, that they will have trauma symptoms specific to the institutional betrayal experience. So they'll, they'll have traumatic symptoms related to the traumatic event itself, like some kind of unwanted sexual experience, but then they'll also have trauma symptoms to the experience of institutional betrayal, whether it was maybe their report not being believed or feeling like they were being punished or blamed in some way. Does that fully answer your question? I'm happy to talk more, but I feel like I can pause now and see if you have any follow-up questions related to that. Yeah, I feel like, thank you for diving into the institutional betrayal like definition. And, you know, we were gonna ask why is it so important to be aware and like address this, but I believe that um, article in the Lafayette Today really did address that. And, you know, your analysis of that is, is a really good explanation to why it is so important because, you know, um, it does affect survivors in such a way that um, can really um, affect, you know, um, how they view the school and how they um, interact with the school later on. So that was, thank you for kind of <laughs> taking that question right out of my brain. Um, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> And Amanda, I, we, we, sorry, you've been kind of sitting back a little bit, but uh, we just wanted you to introduce yourself as well and um, kind of go over how you ended up at Lafayette. You know, what was your path to um, Lafayette and to where you are in the Title IX office today? Great. Thank you so much. Um, I landed here at Lafayette last February, right before COVID hit. So I was on campus about one month. Uh, before we went remote learning and working, and it's been quite the ride this past year. Um, prior to coming here, I spent almost 15 years at Albright College in Reading, where I most recently had served as the Dean of Students and Title IX Coordinator um, in direct oversight of new student orientation, our international student population, um, community standards or student conduct, and I also coached women's basketball there for 13 years. So I, I have a diverse set of experiences in higher ed and going as far back into residence life as well, where I spent six years. So I started my Title IX work back in 2010. So I do have more than 10 years experience in that capacity and really had come to Lafayette because my life and my family and moving in this area and this location and I'd started spending some time on campus and attending athletic events and getting to know people and quickly realized that it was a community that I would like to be a part of and I really thrive in a small private um, liberal arts sort of institution and life Lafayette is different than Albright in many ways but there are some similarities there as well that um, drove me to want to be a part of this community. We love the Lafayette community. I think we wouldn't be here if we didn't. So that's great to hear another Lafayette community lover. Awesome. So would you mind briefly talking about the Title IX office and uh, what it does exactly? Sure. Um, so the Title IX office here is really referred to 
more commonly as the Office of Educational Equity. And really my responsibility and role is to oversee the college's response to all reports of harassment and discrimination, which include those related to sexual harassment, sexual assault, dating, domestic violence, and stalking. And really the idea is to have a prompt, fair, and equitable response to those reports and to help educate the community on our policies and procedures. In the context of students, um, you say that you do a lot of educational um, work with them and kind of reaching out to students and letting them know that like the Office of Educational Equity is, is there for them. How might they go about accessing your support and what does that look like um, specifically within that role? If students are looking for training and educational outreach and assistance, all they need to do is send me an email or, you know, when I'm in the office and back on campus, just pop in, uh, give me a call. I'm more than happy to attend, help put together, offer feedback, whatever students are looking for in that capacity, I am happy to help with. If students are looking for support um, and have questions about the policy or the process, um, how to file a report, what happens when you file a report, what does it mean to submit a formal complaint and uh, what's an investigation and a hearing and all those sorts of things. Um, students can me questions and asking questions does not mean that it's going to initiate an automatic formal response from my office. If students want to file a report because they need support, that will prompt an outreach from me. So if I receive a one-part report, it's coming directly to me and I'm providing outreach to that person. And that could be an email offering the Title IX resource guide and an invitation me to discuss supportive measures and other options, or it could come in the form of um, an official correspondence letter that would come through our Maxient software, and that would include a link to the Maxient software is because it's a safety and security measure and it helps purposes. Uh, sorry, will you repeat that last part on um, where does that link go that you were saying? Um, if, if a student email and it says that it's from Maxient software, there would be a link within that email to the letter from the Office of Educational Equity. Okay, okay. Yeah, so kind of um, transitioning, you know, earlier we talked about the effect um, and seriousness of institutional betrayal, and that is one of the main messages um, in the anti-violence Instagram accounts, as well as, you know, stories even in the Lafayette today still um, continuing. So one of those themes uh, in these accounts and uh, continued stories is that um, there's a sense that Lafayette has failed in protecting survivors and their stories um, and their voices, really. So in the light of this account, um, this is a question for both of you, but we'll hear from Hannah Check first. Um, what is Lafayette doing to restore the sense of loss, um, trust conveyed in the anti-violence and even Dear Lafayette College accounts? So this is, this is a difficult and important one. And I think that these Instagram accounts are indicative of a campus climate and how students are feeling. And what I'm sensing is that there's a lot of mistrust in the administration and I, it's unfortunate. And I, I think that I ever want a student to feel unsupported or isolated if they are a victim of sexual violence in any way. More important, I don't want it to happen to any student. So I think it's important for students to know that we want to be your partners in ending sexual violence on this. We want to continue to structure our policies and our programs to be supportive of the community, um, to be fair, to be equitable, to be prompt, because it's the right thing to do and not because of, of any you know, pressures that are being applied on the administration. We really want students to know and feel that we're in this together with you and we want to be your partner in bringing an end to sexual violence. Mm -hmm. that, those were very heartwarming at least. Uh, and as students, I think despite like 
there is some lack of trust and institutional betrayal as portrayed in the Instagram accounts, like Reda mentioned. And the seriousness of the matter is that both of these Instagram accounts have over 2000 followers. And that I believe are all Lafayette students or alumnus, which kind of just, it does suggest that this feeling of institutional betrayal has been felt by students all over campus, regardless of their gender, regardless of their race, um, and all these other factors that we usually talk about. Uh, but then my question, and Greta and I were discussing this as well, is that how serious, not just serious, but what kind of administrative pressures do these Instagram pages have? Like we know that these are the direct voices of the students, but that being said, the students are also anonymous when they post anything on these pages. And in a sense, it's more like a place where students come and share their stories. And it's not evidence, like we do not look for evidence or we do not ask for evidence. We believe it to be a safe space where people can come and share their story. So that being said, from an administrative perspective, these are not what you might see as trustable evidence or these are not formal complaints and the administration would not take any formal actions against it. All that being said, what weight do, do these Instagram account have in your decision? And we know that personally, each administrative officer working in Lafayette does understand the amount of angst that's expressed in the pages. But when you guys come together professionally, what do you, what do you think of it? And how do you take these Instagram pages as, are they legitimate enough for the college to make structural changes? Or is there something else the student should be doing or could be doing? And I guess, Amanda, you'd be the best to answer this question. <laughs> yeah, it, it's sad. It's sad and it's heartbreaking. And it's not how we want students to feel. We want students to trust us. They, we want you to come um, and ask questions. It's much like an, an anonymous report, it, it's impossible for us to really investigate or, or do anything with an anonymous report. And the same goes with the anonymous posts, right? So if we wanna help change the climate, we wanna encourage people to submit reports and to ask questions and to um, follow through on a process if that's what they want and if that's what they choose. Because you have to remember that someone might submit a report, but they might not want any other type of response from the college. They might submit a report and they want supportive measures. They want counseling. They want a no contact order. They want um, academic support, but they don't want any other type of process. Or a student might want to file a formal complaint. And then what does that mean? It could mean one of two things. It could mean um, we go through an informal process or we go through a formal grievance process that would involve an investigation and a hearing. But ultimately, it is up to the complainant, the victim, the survivor to really determine what happens from there. And I think that continuing to encourage students to come and ask questions and seek support from my office is where I want people to be. I want them to, direct, to directly connect with me. And that's the, the best message that I can convey and give out to students. I've, I've been here a year and I've been here, you know, mostly in a remote sense, but I am really looking forward to continuing to um, get to know students through PASA. PASA has been a great connection for me since I started here. And I really wanna continue to build on that relationship and just have students feel that I'm approachable I'm available and I'm here to help because it's the right thing to do. And, and I guess our listeners would also listen to you and then, and cause I know that you're a very approachable person. <laughs> so I hope that echoes through our podcast. And that being said, I think it's, it's, it's a time that Professor Hannon, you could like share some opinions based on your expertise and like basically, I guess what we think is that when we have any action or any, if not even event, anything, when a sexual assault occurs, there are like two basic things that at least occurs to my mind. That is one, the perpetrator 
would be punished for the crime they've committed. And second, the survivor would receive the support that they will require to recover from this uh, experience. But then neither of these things are guaranteed when you share your story in the Instagram pages. So that being said, what do you think has instigated and even motivated people over the past year to come out? Because it's a very brief step to come out and share your stories to the mass, to come out and share the story. And does this in fact point at the severity of institutional betrayal the campus is feeling right now? Uh, that is a great question. And I hope that my answer can do it justice. So. I think the fact that the Instagram account exists isn't that surprising if you take into account how survivors have been treated for so long. And I mean, treated like in the broadest sense of the word. So before the Me Too movement, the acceptance of really large scale discussions of sexual assault didn't really exist right? Survivors were more likely to be silenced. They were more likely to be blamed by, and I'm I'm saying again, in like the broadest sense of the the word, like blamed by society, by our culture, by whoever. Um, They were maybe told that the event was their fault because of what they were wearing or how much they had to drink, or they may have been told that they were outright lying. Um, But over the past few years, we've seen this paradigm shift and how we talk about sexual assault and gender-based violence, right? Um, And I think this shift comes with it, this move away from a withdraw approach, like kind of withdrawing, uh, hiding, not wanting to talk about it to a more confrontational approach. And it's interesting because we see this withdraw confrontation experience whenever we're betrayed, right? Like if you think about a time in your life where you've experienced any kind of betrayal, maybe someone that you were dating or in a relationship with was unfaithful to you, or you told a friend a secret and you found out that they told everyone, like that feeling of betrayal is very visceral. It's very strong. And typically the urge that comes with it is either to withdraw or to confront. I think for so long, the cultural norm, if you will, has been to withdraw, but now we're seeing that shift to more confrontation. And that's why I'm not super surprised by these Instagram accounts and other schools have them as well. I don't know if anyone has looked on other school Instagram pages and and, and you'll see, because I think oftentimes the school at large is tagged in the post you will see in tagged posts, like similar things going on, Um, but there still is a problem here. But um, so it's interesting. And uh, Dr. Jennifer Fried, who I talked about earlier, who coined this phrase institutional betrayal, um, she theorizes from an evolutionary perspective that we as human beings, as a species have evolved to become very sensitive to betrayal. Uh, because we're such a social species, right? We really need each other. We depend on each other to survive and and we need to trust each other in order to survive. So ignoring betrayal, instances of betrayal could actually be very harmful to humans as a species. And it could be harmful for our survival um, because if we ignore betrayal, potentially it could keep happening over and over again and we can keep getting hurt and wronged and, and, and taken advantage of. So it's this really like complicated thing, right? But yeah, so I think part of the, your question, uh, Swati, was just what do I make of the accounts? And it's that I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that surprised. I think it's a way for survivors to try and take back control. Um, I think it's a way for them to take back control of their story of their feelings. And I'm hoping that it might be reducing shame a little bit. Um, Oftentimes with interpersonal trauma like this, there is such high shame and the shame is distorted, right? People think, oh, like I shouldn't have gone to that party. If I wouldn't have gone to the party, then this thing wouldn't have happened when that's irrelevant, right? Um, So shame makes us wanna hide. 
it makes us want to withdraw, right? So by acting opposite to shame, by confronting, by sharing one's experience, it might actually reduce shame. Did that answer all of your question, Swati? I guess way better than I expected. And I had very high expectations. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, I really like the like the touching on shame as like a theme because obviously, you know, feeling shame makes us do a lot of things, you know, like it might make us try to conform. It might make us, you know, withdraw a single way. And I think that, you know, just like being a person in society, I think that there is a change that we're seeing in that the youth, specifically like Gen Z or, you know, later millennials, I think are really stepping up and kind of squashing this idea of shame and um, and kind of not letting it though control your actions um, in a sense, um, or at least in the same way that we have been, right? You know, withdrawing versus confronting. And so, yeah, I thought that was a really cool answer. <laughs> and I guess now that we're discussing it and some things like these opinions have been expressed in our passive workshops and it is great that these Instagram pages are providing a safer and a more inclusive space for supporters to come and own their story, share their story, realize that it was not their mistake. It was not something that they should feel guilt or shame for. But at the end of the day, I guess what also matters is that we create an environment where we do not have to support survivors because, well, we do not have survivors. Um, and as much as the Instagram pages have been providing a safe space, they are not creating a safe space necessarily. So I guess I would first want, and I guess random, whoever feels like going in and talking about it, uh, what do you think can the college do or is the college doing to make sure that it's creating a safer space, not just for survivor support, but to make sure that they, they have these students, all of them accountable to their actions. In case uh, assault has been committed, the perpetrator is punished or necessary actions are taken. It's not constantly delayed because we've had these stories uh, where students share how they're made to their in a sense compelled to share a space with their own perpetrator. And if your perpetrator is sitting next to you in your classroom, I don't know what else you'll be able to focus on. So apart from making a open space for survivors to share their stories, what can and what is the college doing to make sure that it's more accountable to their experiences? It's just not acknowledging it, but it's acknowledging it enough to punish the perpetrators. And if it does not, if it's still on the way of figuring out, I guess Professor Hannon could just step up and suggest what the college could do and what is that the, because from a psychological perspective, from an evolutionary perspective, what do we need and what would work the best? I'll go first and then I'll let Susan address it. Um, you know, I think that to connect on topics like this with your group with PASA, I think this podcast is a really um, great way to share what my office does, um, continuing the programming, the education. We've also recently tried putting out some quick hit announcements in Lafayette today to sort of address some of those questions or misconceptions that students might have, like who is a mandated reporter? Um, what is Maxient? Is it spam? Myth or fact? Where does, you know, what happens with a one-part report? Who investigates public safety or external investigators? Those types of things. So I think just continuing to find ways to who I am and what my office does is, is a really important way. And then the other thing that we're doing and working on, it'll run through next May of 2022, is we um, grant recently. And there are several initiatives regular to training and education directly with PASA and helping PASA feel supported and well prepared to go out and educate their peers. And in doing so, we're going to partner with uh, Crime Victims Council and Turning Point to get some dedicated programming throughout the year for the peer educators. And we're also bringing in um, NTAB. Adam Dodge is going to do a training on ending technology-enabled abuse. And 
and really it'll it'll equip the peer eds in Plaza to be able to spread that programming um, and what they learn to their peers in the next year and beyond. We think it's going to be sustainable that we can definitely uh, keep it moving well beyond 2022. I feel like those are all like great um, things. And, you know, as past members, uh, we are so excited to hear that um, more kind of education and training will be available for us, especially um, as an organization. I think that's just awesome. Um, So thank you. And um, I guess it was just really exciting to hear all those actions um, that the college is taking from like an administrative side. But um, Professor Hannon, you said. Yeah, no, sorry. Um, Yeah. So to answer your question about how can like what is or, or what can Lafayette do to increase that feeling of safety and to try to rebuild feelings of of mistrust. Um, I think there's both a top-down and a bottom-up approach. I don't think it's an either-or situation. I think it's a both-and. So starting starting with top-down from an administration, staff, faculty level, um, the opposite of institutional betrayal is institutional courage. Uh, And this is something that is studied in Dr. Fried's office that I've talked about before that I mentioned before. And institutional courage is when the institution makes steps to um, correct these feelings of wrongdoing that have occurred over time. You know, I think we at Lafayette, we like to focus on a lot of the wonderful things that we're doing. And there are so many wonderful things, like all of the cool research and opportunities and experiential learning. But we all know that there are things that we can improve upon and do so, 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 so much better in. And like I, as a faculty member and included in that. So I, you know, from the institutional level, I think listening to these stories and these experiences on the Instagram account and listening to students that are speaking so loudly and and speaking so eloquently about these topics. You know, I know that there are professors on campus like Professor Dana Cuomo, who I think you talked to last week, um, who is actually conducting research on the Instagram account and is looking at themes within those experiences and within those stories, which then might be able to be shared as data to the administration and perhaps maybe some procedural changes might come from that. Um, I'm also doing some research this semester that's looking at rates of campus sexual assault and then um, experiences of institutional betrayal following that. So I think we need to continue to recognize that it's a problem We all know that it's a problem everywhere. It's not unique to Lafayette. And at the end of the day, it is a problem here. So accepting that and and treating it as a serious um, is, you know, a good start. Uh, I know that, you know, PASA recently sent another open letter to the administration. I don't know what those conversations have looked like, but I think those conversations are happening with the administration and staff. And I hope that those have um, continue to be helpful. You know, like Amanda said, like they, I, I, you could hear it, right? Like, I think it, it, it breaks their heart that there is this mistrust. Like that's the last thing that they want. So I think just that continued open dialogue, um, difficult dialogue, right? Like courageous conversations between survivors and students and admin and faculty are really important. Um, Amanda, I don't know if you spoke to this and hopefully we can talk about this on here, but Amanda and I are on a search committee for a new hire. Um, we're, we're in the process of looking for, uh, this is a new position, uh, sexual assault advocate and prevention coordinator. So that will be another invaluable resource, hopefully added to our campus community soon. Um, but then from the bottom up level, you know, I know PASA, I think it was maybe a couple of weeks ago, had uh, informal conversation about values, right? So what do we as students at Lafayette College really value? I think that's really important too. I don't know if Lafayette has a kind of blanket value statement where you know, okay, if I sign up to be part of this thing that's bigger than me, like I adhere to these values, I agree with these values of this institution. And that's why I'm here because it speaks to me. I connect to this place in that really special way. 
I think that's really important too, having an honest conversation among yourselves and other peers about like, what do we want this thing to be, right? Like, why are we here? What do, what do we value? And then really holding yourself to your values. You know, as a clinician, if I'm working with a patient and they come in and they say, I don't really know what, what my values are, that's the first place we start. Because if you don't know what your values are, like, where do we go from there, right? It truly guides everything. So I think that is a great, like, bottom-up kind of way to think about these matters as well. Yeah, I, I like the point on um, the values, especially. I just wanted um, to ask, though, um, if either of you guys could elaborate a bit on the advocate position that you guys are looking for and what you hope to accomplish with this hire or addition to um, the community. My brain, as soon as I stopped talking and answered that question, I was like, oh, how could I forget to mention this? But from my perspective and, and what I've learned early on in being here is that students really want to feel that someone is in their corner. Um, and in my role, I can't necessarily be that person. It, it's not the role that I have. But they want to know that someone is there with them through every step of the process when they're the victim of a sexual assault or stalking. They want to know that they have someone that is, and this position is completely We feel that it'll be important for students to know that and know that they have someone in their corner from start to finish. Um, and we are really looking forward to having that that person be here because we think it's so uh, critical for the students to have that. And then the other piece um, will be the prevention and and um, offering those programs and helping, you know, put them together, organize, coordinate, and sort of keep track from a calendar year of what we're doing as an institution. So two big components, and and hopefully we can have. Um, that position in place for the start of the fall semester. Yeah, and just to add to that a little bit, I mean, like the Title IX process is messy, right? It's complicated. Amanda, I do not envy you one bit. I could never do your job. Um, so I think having this confidential advocate that's separate from the Title IX office will be a wonderful resource for students. As I said at the beginning of our call, I am one of PASA's advisor. I'm you know, your, your faculty advisor. And I'm like kind of fit for the position, but kind of not. I mean, I have done a lot of work with survivors of sexual assault and I'm informed in trauma-informed care and training. But I really do not have any experience with prevention programming. And as you know, so much of what PASA do is prevention. I mean, you are the people responsible on campus for providing trainings and prevention efforts for our athletics team, uh, Greek life, other student clubs and organizations. So whoever is hired for this position will, you know, hopefully then become PASA's stable, consistent advisor who will have a lot more experience in training and prevention efforts than I. While we still keep on knocking on Professor Han's door, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it. I think this news that we will be getting a student support advocate is, uh, in a way, kind of wraps up our conversation and discussion today. Because now, I I believe that position, whoever person, capable person, would fulfill that position, would act as a bridge between the students and the college while encouraging both the top-down and the bottom-up approach. I guess the final question would be, what do you wish, like what is the one thing, one shift that you hope to see in, in our institution and in our college in the coming year? Or if to make the, to spice up a question a bit more and we have been having this open discussions about values, what do you think should be the core value of the college and its students? so that we will create the better community that we're striving for. Well, I, I, Susan and I team in August to do a, um, a training session for the OLs and the new students. And Susan came up with the, the title is helping to create uh, a Lafayette community that is safe, inclusive. I think that's exactly what we want. Um, we wanna shift that climate and, and we want students to feel safe and supported um, 
in this community. So I think the students need to choose their values, right? Uh, I think we've all had experiences in our past where we've like tried to impose our own values on someone else and that never ends up well, right? For better or worse. So um, I think you all need to decide what your values are. Uh, I mean, I echo Amanda, I think I want students to feel safe and welcome. I think a lot of us, unfortunately, have had experiences where we don't feel that way. Um, and then to like add layers on that, where then we're supposed to be in this environment where we're learning and experiencing all these new things. And that can just be completely eroded if at its most basic level, we don't feel safe or we don't feel like we have resources where we can turn to. So I think those would be the two biggest things for me. Yeah, I really like um, that shifting, like we're talking about values as a community. Um, I agree with your point, uh, Professor Hannon, that you know we do have to choose our own values so that we can believe in them and then you know pursue them in action. I think that's so important because how can we act on something that we don't necessarily believe, right? That's all I got, okay. <laughs> Swatsy, anything? Then I think conversation needs to change as we continue to put in the action. And I guess, and I, I not just that do I guess, I believe that every person on Lafayette, students, faculty, staffs, professor, everyone is determined to make the changes. And it is, I guess, through these conversations, we realize that, well, all of us do have almost similar goals. So why just not work together? Um, and knowing that we have people like Professor Hannon and Amanda in the positions that they are, and that they're continually striving to make our community safer and better. Taking time out of their lives to come on this podcast and talk to us. And it, it really means a lot to us. I think it really means a lot to the student body because it shows how dedicated and motivated you both are. So thank you for coming by today. <laughs> thank you for saying that. And I also just want to highlight too, like I hope for a few moments, both of you and all of PASA can take like a bird's eye view of all of the work that you have done. I think it's easy when you're in a situation or in an experience to not have like understand the full weight of what you're doing. But I mean, the work that PASA has done is just, it really blows my mind every day. And if you think about how just, I mean, in the few years that I have been here since 2017, which I think is around the time that PASA was founded, um, some of the change, at least the change in like the different types of conversations that we're having and the different dialogues that we're having um, has just been really amazing. So I hope you guys can give yourself a pat on the back too, because you deserve it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And I just want to say thank you for inviting me to be a part of this conversation. And I really hope that we can keep the conversation going and um, we appreciate you and all that you do. So Thank you. Keep it up. Thanks. And to you guys too. Couldn't be here without all of your wisdom and help and support, honestly. So thank you. Like, I think it might just be me, but I also know it's definitely not me that I think a lot of students have like this kind of like, ooh, like administrators are like snooty or like, you know, that we might have like administrators, I think get a bad rap. But like, I think that was the first time that I was specifically talking alone to Amanda. And like, she's really cool. Like, I feel bad that um, she kind of like came into Lafayette and then like all of a sudden quarantine hit and she didn't like get that chance to like build relationships with students. But like, she tries so hard now to build relationships with students with students. And I think that is so important, especially in her position. I know that she can only really speak on behalf of the college and can't really provide, you know, the same support as an advocate. She still does everything I think that she can and like within her power to um, support us as students in PASA too as like an organization. Like it's just so tough virtually um, and like benefit of the doubt, man, like with that stuff. That's true. And I think it was so good when she said that we're hiring another person who can be who can be more of a student focused resource and who the students can talk to, because I think that's like a personal and professional split for Amanda, where she's like, well, 
Yeah, but then it's good that they're hiring <laughs> hiring someone who can be less neutral, I guess. Um, yeah, who can really be like on the side of on the side of Survivor and help them through all of those things. Because I'm sure, you know, Amanda, she has a lot on her plate, so lot. she can't be all of those things at once. So I yeah, it's I think it's a great step that the school is taking to hire an advocate mm-hmm. um, that they're in the process of doing now. And I guess a, a good thing is also that, I, and we didn't realize it, that both Professor Hannon and Amanda are in the search committee, which would, which is like very, which was the vision we had when we asked them to come to the podcast together, because we want the college to take scientifically appropriated uh, steps in helping the survivors. I really liked how Professor Hannon talked about the top-down and the bottom approach method, uh, which was also something that uh, Professor Cuomo talked about during the last episode where she was like, students have the power and students need to realize the amount of power that we have. And the yes. fact that Professor Hannon also pointed it out and the discussions that we, again, the debated discussion we're having on values. Yes, and- that's what I was thinking exactly, like how the students can influence, you know, the college. That is, you know, bottom-up approach, but it's also you know, on the other hand, the college can also choose values and top down. It's like mm-hmm. a very cool way, I think, of inciting change. Like, let's look at our values and like act on them, you know. And I think that's very important as well, because at least from what I understand and what is echoed on the Instagram pages that we talked about today, is that the students want more accountability from the college's side. And that accountability could be measured in how they support the survivors and how they deal with the perpetrators. But an important thing, I guess, Professor Hannon pointed out, and also Amanda pointed out, is that for the college to take action, it needs complaints, it needs reports, it needs survival willing and wanting to take action um, Mm -hmm. against people who have wronged them. And the fact that I think it's more of the student as like the student population's uh, duty to create an atmosphere where we do not shame our survivors for sharing their story, where we do not doubt our survivors for sharing their stories. Because if we're not allowing them to share their stories, to file complaint, to support them while they recover from the trauma, we cannot expect the administration to be accountable to us because if they're not getting any complaints, there's basically nothing that they can do, like formally, yeah. if that makes sense. I Yeah, I totally see that point. I just feel like it also goes, it also goes both ways in that there would be reports if there had been, you know, more trust, I think, in the administration at this point. And I think that the administration is doing you know, a better job of trying to rebuild that trust. But again, on that topic of shame, they feel like they could be, you know, vulnerable of that if they do report right now. That's not to say that that's the case, because I think Amanda has been doing a good job and the administration has been trying to rebuild that, you know, but it like, again, like it just, it goes both ways. The administration can't do anything if no one's reporting, but also no one wants to report because of the past. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's basically a feedback loop. Yeah, and totally. I'm just going to ask Greta an interview question. Oh, so okay. in your four years in Lafayette, now that you're a graduating a senior, I'm going to bring this in every podcast we have. Uh, oh, what, what have you seen? Uh, because we, like, we do know what, what we could do better, right? But then what do you think has become better over your past four years in Lafayette as a student in the student body, and then what steps has the administration taken which you would want the administration to continue taking? And I think you would be the best person because you've been here for four years. You're also a very introspective, aware person. Yeah, I think I think that's a really um, good question. I think that Professor Hannon's point on um, a culture shift happen you know tenfold here at Lafayette is this you know idea of um, action in the stories that we have read from alumni on the anti-violence there was a lot of withdrawal and to no fault of their own right because they didn't trust um, the administration so now I think now we're seeing a shift to confronting that you know I look at my peers in past I look at my peers you know across the way in one part um sheesh even Greek organizations I think are stepping up to the plate and saying 
you know, if this is a problem, let's do it ourselves. Like, let's try to fix it ourselves. And I think that the administration is finally catching up to that. I think now, as I've formed relationships with people as the Title IX or the Office of Equity and Inclusion has grown, I start to see a Lafayette that I think, you know, I would suggest to a friend, if you are a person who values hard work and is willing to create the change that you want to see, Lafayette is a place for you. Student activism has always been a key and like a core, I guess, a core value at Lafayette, but not in the way that I think it's been done here, like, and now, mm-hmm. um, which is very cool. Yeah, I, I walked into this climate and I, I, I was surprised, but hearing from you the transition, it's it's kind of like a proud moment. And I guess the administration, like the administration and like the system, whatever system, because we've been talking about institutions and systems a lot lately, like last time we talked about Greek life. And today we talked about this college administration student dynamic. But one thing that I've been able to take away from our conversations is that even in the system that seems to be, that seems like it could do way better, also has people inside them. And it could be a majority, it could be the minority of people who are willing to change that system. And, and I guess as much as we believe that the system needs to change from within and the pressure needs to build from within. Like as the students, like PASA could send a thousand open letters, but as long as people inside the institution are not receptive of it, there's not going to be a change. Mm-hmm. But I guess the podcast was helpful because we know that we have people like Amanda. I was just about to say, you know, for, I feel like we don't know the people that that you're talking about that are kind of preventing um, preventing change, but like we know Amanda and like we know VP Diorio and we know, mm-hmm. you know, Professor Cuomo and Professor Hannon and, you know, upcoming Dean Sample, who is a new Dean of Students um, who came from, you know, a position in a Title IX office. So we have people that clearly want to create change. Um, I guess it's about weeding out the people who don't want to create change. Mm-hmm. I guess that would be a new topic of discussion. Ooh. But, um, Ooh. and I guess these are difficult conversations and we are not in any position. I guess my, I personally am not in any position to give any concrete opinion on this, but at the least, least with it, with this podcast and with the work we do in PASA, we're trying to make sure that everyone's at least talking about it in their roles, in their positions. And the conversation gets conveyed to a high level. At the end of the day, everybody needs to work on this. We just cannot point fingers, blame at other people because fingers point in different directions. So they could be pointing at us as well. Yeah. But you're in the spotlight, man. <laughs> like us. <laughs> yeah. And we're, we're, not, we're not giving any of our personal opinions. We're just trying to convey what the student body feels. And we're trying to convey what the administration feels. And we're, we're just a middleman. And this podcast, which is being recorded right now, would, yeah. Be, yeah, would let you know that. I think our fluctuations in our tone, us forgetting words, will let you know that this was very much an honest conversation. And whatever the listeners are hearing is the honest, uh, honest conversation that we had. Yeah. On that point, though, I just want to like push back, but... I think that we are students and we're talking to professors. We're also talking to administrators. You know, there is going to be, and we also come from different backgrounds. So there's going to be some sort of bias and opinion in whatever we're saying and whatever we kind of phrase our words or questions as. And you know what? I think that's okay though, because we acknowledge that we're in a position with certain experiences and you know what? Hey, I'm a student and I want to see change. What are you as as an administration doing about it? And an and an administrator is saying, hey, I'm an administrator who really cares about this school. I need you to give that trust to me and, and change your actions from, you know, posting stories on anti-violence to giving me a report that I can help you with or um, do something about. I think as students do and should have an opinion, but that's not going to deter us from listening to others and to changing the way that we do things if it's not, you know, up to somebody else's satisfaction. Like people want to say, hey, your podcast sucks. I want to see you talk to this person. 
maybe we'll do that. Like, <laughs> like, I feel like, I yep. feel like I would listen to them <laughs> mm-hmm. saying as a student, I want to listen to this. And so therein lies, you know, an experiential expertise is what I'm trying to say, yep. um, which is cool, which is why I study anthropology and sociology. And I think it's dope. <laughs> that's her major. Um, yeah, that's very true. Cause people think a lot. So their thoughts might have gone where we've not. And like you said, these are, this is just experience-based process. It's a process uh, and we just need to be motivated throughout. Um, and I guess just to wrap up this podcast uh, so that we can make another podcast. <laughs> yeah, gosh. Uh, but People we, I think are going to be sick of listening to us at this point. Oh How I think about my friends being like, you know what? Mm, you, can turn us, you could have turned us off 30 minutes ago. It's fine. <laughs> oh, it, yeah. But now if you're still listening to us, we would like to say we love you all. Um, and so Greta, support. <laughs> support. And Greta, and I would want you to say it is um, concisely, what is the key takeaway of this episode? What is the connection that we tried to make and we made between the Instagram post calling Professor Hannon and Amanda? And what is it that we want our listeners to take away from this long episode of ours? <laughs> Very long. Um, gosh. You know, I think I'm going to sound like a broken record um, in saying this, but, you know, I actually came into this podcast thinking that I would, you know, be like angry and like when, you know, leaving, I would feel angry or something like maybe the administration isn't doing enough or like, you know, on the point of Professor Hannon's like, there's institutional betrayal going on, like, what as students are we going to do? But I think that's where I was at going into this, mm-hmm. coming out of it. I think I have a way different takeaway which is I'll get to it um (laughs) sure I think we need to reevaluate our values like reevaluating our values and acting on those and as a college working in collaboration students to administration to faculty and holding people accountable holding our friends accountable let's start from there Uh, holding like if we're capable of holding like this is sort of this hypocrisy where it's like, it's wrong if the other person does it, but if it's someone close to you, it's like, yeah, it makes sense. Like stepping out of that hypocrisy, be it your friends, be it your um, chapter members, be it anyone, just stepping out of that hypocrisy. And yes, then- stepping out of that hypocrisy. I like that. And you know what? Now I remember um, Professor Cuomo also talked about values. Like she wouldn't, she didn't say that, um, she thought that she could, you know, decide on those values because we did ask her like, oh, like, what do you think our values as an institution should be if like this is what is kind of going wrong? And she refrained from answering that question, right? But I mean, she poses a good question, like what are our values as an institution? What are our values as students coming together and kind of creating a community around like values, you know, inclusive, safety, welcoming values? Is something that I didn't think I would take away from this podcast, but I did, you know, so. That was an amazing podcast episode that we had with mm-hmm. Professor Hannon and Amanda and Greta is always sharing her experience. And in the past two podcasts, to our listeners who cannot get more of us and are still listening to us, we talked oh, about sure. our values. However, value is a very introspective and individual, uh, individualized process. And none of our guests were very super comfortable in sharing what should our values as a student be and what should the college's values be? But because we like digging and uh, Greta's uh, major is apparently anthropology and sociology and it has nothing to do with this. Yes. yes, and I keep asking the questions. <laughs> keep asking the questions. So because we love digging, we're going to take this question a step up. We're going to go to a step higher and knock on the doors of the people and ask them, what are our college's values? And if the answer is, well, we don't know, we'll just sit down and decide what could it be. So for our next episode, we would have VP Diorio and Dean Samples and just tune in to see where that conversation needs. Yeah, I'm excited. Are you excited? Very much so. I even scheduled it. Okay. Well, we hope you all are excited as well for that conversation. Um, so with that, happy Friday. Well, we're doing a good rest of your day. <laughs> just take care of yourself. Come on. I did a face mask today. You can do that too. Oh, no wonder you're glowing. <laughs> oh, oh, Swati. Thank you.
<laughs> killing me. All right. Goodbye now. Bye.